morning. We're not starting too early, are we? No. Okay. I don't want to rush anybody. <laughs> oh. You know, this next hour, I hope, I hope really the lecture is more of an ex an excuse. I think we got a ring in the sound system a little bit. I, uh, the, that this next hour together will really just be an excuse to uh, just spend time thinking about God and to just be reminded of the nature of things and uh, to remove, I guess, some of our misunderstanding that uh, causes a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of sadness, um, a lot of different things. Actually, it causes a lot of happiness and elation as well. But to, to try and understand things as they really are, to get a view of this world in its reality, to know what's going on. Uh, I'm bewildered quite often, <laughs> actually all the time, uh, when I stop and think about it, about the nature of, of things, about how, how little we know, how little we understand. Uh, you know, so many of the things that I just assume are obvious during a day, things that are so familiar to me that I've stopped wondering about them. It's kind of an ongoing theme of my spiritual life to go back and revisit those ideas. You know, one that I shared, uh, I shared it a couple times with a few people this week, but it's a notion that, that I've had a lot of fun with. It seems maybe oversimplified or maybe in someone else's mind kind of silly. But I was thinking the other day, oddly enough, and I was thinking about thinking and, and was trying to define what that is. What is a thought? And oddly enough, I'm still uh, perplexed. I, I still don't have an answer for that. Uh, what is a thought? Where does it come from? As many of, as I have in a day... No matter how quiet uh, my meditation seems to get, I never can find the source of these thoughts, where they're coming from. And now I realize that I don't even know what they are <laughs> or why they have any effect on me. You know, why, why do I believe some and not believe others? And why do I, you know, value some and devalue others? Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting exercise. Uh, it has nothing to do with the lecture today, but <laughs> maybe, who knows, it's in the mind for some reason. But uh, those are the kinds of things that I like to, to bring about because they do put you in the presence of God. Uh, Vivekananda says a beautiful thing. Actually, I'm going to hold off on that. Well, no, I'll read it. It's part of the lecture. Some imaginations help to break the bondage of rest. The whole universe is imagination. But one set of imaginations will cure another set. Those that tell us that there is, no, that there is sin and sorrow and death in the world are terrible. But the other set, thou art holy, there is God, there is no pain, there is good, and help to break the bondage. These are good and help to break the bondage of the others. The highest imagination that can break all the links of the chain is that of the personal God. What I, what I highlight in there, or what I found interesting in there is, is you know, he says, imagine uh, these things to be true, that you are of God, that your nature is ever free, and that you're ever pure, that you're ever blissful, which is fine. That's a very common practice. Everybody knows about it. But then he says that little phrase right after it. He says, uh, you know, but the whole universe is imagination. So it's not just what you're imagining in this imaginary world, that's imagination, but it's the whole context. And this is kind of the, the idea that drove this lecture, is that if this world is imagination, if it's all in your mind, then it's entirely within your control. <laughs> and you can make of it uh, what you will, and you can become what you, what you think and what you dream, what you imagine. And what I know, or at least 
what I think is very common among us is that we all want peace, peace of mind. We all want a contentment. We all want a, a, an inner satisfaction, a bliss, uh, one that's based on something that we believe to be true, something that we know to be true, so that we can be secure in it, that we don't think of it as an imagination, we don't think of it as a trifle of the mind, uh, without understanding that everything is. So to start, let's read our poem from Hafiz. He's got a great fun one today. And this is the spirit that, that I'm hoping uh, we can experience while we really play and explore Mother. The sky is a suspended blue ocean. The stars are the fish that swim. The planets, they're white whales that I sometimes hitch a ride on. And the sun, all of the light, have forever fused themselves into my heart and upon my skin. There is only one rule on this wild playground. For every sign Hafiz has ever seen reads the same. They all say, have fun, my dear. My dear, have fun in the beloved's divine game. Oh, in this, the beloved's wonderful game. To have fun, to enjoy this life, to not get caught in this world. One of my favorite perspectives of the scriptures was given to me by, I, I think it was Swami Prabhudananda. <laughs> we'll say Swami Prabhudananda. He said, uh, you know, he said that, that, that the scriptures, uh, and I think I've shared this before as everything. He says the scriptures aren't there to tell you or to, to, to keep you from enjoying the world. Enjoyment of the world is not the problem. <laughs> the scriptures are there to teach you how to enjoy the world. How to enjoy the world so that you don't get stuck. So that you don't get caught in the opposites. That you don't prefer one form of, of bliss over the other. <laughs> one form of experience over another. But to find that one perspective in your life where all things are beautiful and all things remind you of your highest ideal. And we're going to look today at a man's life where this idea was heartily and heavily challenged. Uh, I don't know if, how many people have heard of Job. Has anybody heard of Job? There's an entire book in the Old Testament that's devoted uh, to this man's experience. And it is a tough read. Uh, it's tough. I tell you, you read that book and you just immediately want to find God and, and just, just beat him up. <laughs> you just really want to set the record straight. Uh, it's a very difficult reading. Uh, and yet, in the midst of that life that we're going to explore, uh, Job found this space, you know, he found this rock inside, and he describes it, and he talks about some of the ways he found it. David, in the Old Testament, we're going for a big Old Testament lecture today, and Inspire Talks too, but David in the Old Testament also found this beautiful place, this rock of existence within himself, and he writes a song about it, Psalm 16, which we're going to touch upon. And then, of course, Vivekananda, uh, always hinting and poking at things. And uh, I imagine, actually, him having a, a, a great deal of fun with our ignorance <laughs> as he tries to get us to let go and to get us to catch a different vision, to catch a different view of, of spiritual life and our experience of it. You know, because in this world, the way that this world is, so many times, uh, it's the opposite. Those things which should be, or not should be, but, but which are the source of all joy, are the source of all contentment. Uh, in this world of Mayo, where things get flipped upside down, they begin to look like the things that are boring and the things that are square and the, th the things that are uninteresting. And, uh, you know, I, I think of my experience growing up going to church and uh, sitting there in that pew and trying to understand what was being said and what was being talked about but really just wishing that it was over, you know. <laughs> Thankfully, for that period of my life anyway, I grew up with a family. We were experts. We were always the last ones in. 
and the first one's out <laughs> after the lecture was over. <laughs> we, had our, we had our special backseat row there where we would sit. So we were experts in that, in that matter. And it's, it's very odd that I've chosen a life that put me in church 24-7. And, and here we are with that. But it's because I suspect that this is true, that there is a secret that will flip the world literally 180 degrees to where that which seems like pleasure at one time will become the pain and that which seemed like pain at one time will become the pleasure, will become the joy and a lasting joy, a deeper joy. In The Great Master, we're going to go. It's a, that this is, the Great Master is by Swami Shardananda. If you haven't read it, it's a giant tome of a book. We've got it for sale in the bookshop or if you want to borrow it. Uh, a very difficult read, but what it is, is it's basically the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, uh, written by M, is ab about uh, things that the master did and said when he was with uh, non-monastic devotees, you know, with, with, uh, with folks like, like us. And then in the, after, in the great master, Swami Shardananda does the same kind of thing, writes about the life of Sri Ramakrishna, but writes about the things that were kind of privy only to those who were, you know, uh, I hate to use that term inner circle because I really believe we all are inner circle, but that, that more intimate group of people, I guess the people who were more ready to let go of their, <laughs> their stuff than others. And he writes about his practices and his insights, and it's a, it's a fascinating book. It will definitely challenge your conceptions of spiritual practice Definitely challenge your, your sorry, Takor, your conceptions of sanity. <laughs> you know, as you look at the extent to which Ramakrishna was interested in finding the truth, to, if you if you just see that he held nothing in the way of investigating what is true, what is real, what is unreal, he put. I mean, he he just he put everything on on uh, the tool the tool bench and poked at it and dissected it and took it apart. And he tried anything. I mean, he dressed like a woman for six months, which isn't that big of a deal, but he did that. He, he lived like a monkey in a tree for several months to the point that the book says, Swami Shardananda says, that his tailbone even began to elongate, that he got, he believed it so deeply, uh, was so engrossed in worshiping God, Rama as Hanuman, that, that his body actually began to change and take on that shape. And the same when he, when he dressed as one of the handmaidens of, of the divine. You know, his body actually began to take on the shape, which we find surprising because of our lack of concentration. This world seems very fixed and very static as it is. Like, this body is what it is. Of, of course, that in itself is a delusion because this body is completely different than it was yesterday. Yeah, there's a few things there, but, you know, <laughs> we, <laughs> we assume, we assume it's the same. You know, we keep assuming this, that this world is static, but this world is your imagination. You know, this world is as you see it. it. It has everything to do with what you think is there and what you expect to be there. And uh, Ramakrishna's spiritual practice shows that that's just not the case, that this world is malleable, that this world uh, will reflect back to you what you see in it. And there's a great deal of strength in that. So in The Great Master, there's this small paragraph that says, and he's talking about Ramakrishna's family. They all felt that their worldly anxieties disappeared into thin air, so to say, when they were near Ramakrishna. And that there flowed in their hearts a serene and a tranquil current of bliss and peace. But when they were away from him, they experienced a strong, inexpressible desire to go to him once again. And, then, and thus there was this incessant flow of bliss in that family when they had him in their midst after such a long time of, of separation. I, I read this first on Google. <laughs> so I didn't have the information that it was being written about his family. Uh, and even uh, that, the, that the pronouns in there expressed Ramakrishna. So I, I got more of a generic read of it, and I liked what that did. I liked what that did. 
because it made the he not a physical person, but the divine, and the family or the reference to the person there being people, being you and me. And I thought there is the first truth for us about finding this tranquility that can take us through all of the problems of life that will give us what, what we're going to see in Job and what we're going to see in David. And that is to be close to God. That to be close to God is to feel that bliss, to figure it out, to know that God is. We're going to read a great passage toward the end of the lecture where Vivekananda reminds us once again that this whole world is God, that you've never seen anything but God. You know, and that the big joke on us is that we run around looking for God, claiming he doesn't exist. You know, that atheism seems like such a logical choice. After all, what who's seen him? Nobody's seen him anywhere. <laughs> you know, and here he is. Everything around you, every potential of love that's in this room is a potential of the manifestation of God. If you want to see God, love somebody. Feel that love that is your beloved himself manifesting. Go and do something kind for somebody. That feeling that comes between the two of you, that is God manifesting himself. That is your beloved, the divine. Go inside and open up your inner windows Refresh your heart with love for the experience of being alive, for you yourself being a manifestation of that love. Feel the source of that love. You have to find that first. That's one of the most important things. When you look at somebody that you love, when you look, look at your wife or your husband, assuming you love them, if you look at your kids you know, or your grandmother, whatever it is, stop paying attention to what you're looking at for just a moment and switch your attention to what's happening within you. You find that that love is being awakened, that God is being manifested there, that your nature is being roused. Become aware of that and understand that it being there, that it was there in potential form before whatever it was outside reflected it or reminded you or poked at it for you, that it has nothing to do with this outside world, that 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 love that you are enjoying at that moment in the presence of that person is yours even when that person isn't there and was never there. How do you know that? Because everybody is feeling love, and it's not because the same person is in the room for us. You know, Everybody's feeling love. It's not because we all have the same wife or the same husband or the same best friend. So it's not the thing outside that's causing this love, that's, that's, that's making this love happen. This love is there in you all the time. It is what you are. And to find that tranquility and to find that peace of mind, to find that boat across this world, uh, is to find that, is to discover in yourself this beautiful love, this beautiful potential of being a great lover, a great manifester of the beloved, of the divine. In Inspired Talks, Vivekananda says, differentiation creates homogeneity or sameness is God. Get beyond differentiation, then you conquer life and death and reach eternal sameness and are in God, are God. Get freedom even at the cost of life. All lives belong to us as leaves to a book, but we are unchanged, the witness, the soul, upon whom the impression is made, as when the impression of a circle is made upon the eyes when a firebrand is rapidly whirled around and around, or a flashlight in the dark. The soul is the unity of all personalities, and because it is at rest, eternal, unchangeable, it is God. Atman. It is not life, but it is coined into life. It is not pleasure, but it is manufactured into pleasure. Those last two sentences there, I really appreciated. That when you see this world, that, the, that, that this soul that is within you, it sits there in perfect contentment without an expression because there's no need for expression. 
There's no need for anything to happen or anything to be done. That if you are quiet for a moment, you will find that your default state is peace. If you can stop the thought, whatever that might be, for just a moment, that's telling you that you need to go and pick up this, and you need to buy that, you need to stop doing this, and you need to become this, and that person needs to stop saying that and stop doing that. When you let that go for just a moment, you find that behind that, there's a contentment that's yours, that sits there all the time. And that contentment, that peace that is within you, can be coined into pleasure. <laughs> it can be coined in, into the personal God, into the presence of the divine. It can make God tangible by revealing him to you, by telling you of him even. You know, we're kind of at the stage where we have to stop looking at the objects and then become aware for a moment of the love that's happening within us. But then after we've done that, we can sit and stare at that love that's happening within us and walk around it and understand its nature. And we can learn of God. We carry our own set of the Vedas with us everywhere we go. We carry our own song of the divine, our own Bhagavad Gita here. And by studying that, that love, that feeling of love and the things that violate it, the things that enhance it, the things that make it visible, the things that, 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 that wipe away its hiding places. By watching those things, the scriptures write themselves. The scriptures are taught to us. They reveal themselves within us. We don't have to necessarily... Going to a book, of course, helps us to get to that point because some of us... We've got so much stuff going on in the mind that we can't figure out or we can't hear those lessons. But when the, when the scriptures, the external scriptures, the written scriptures, written by people who were simply writing down what they were discovering within, simply writing down for generations to come the secrets that they were finding about love, about the divinity that they had discovered, about this well of tranquility that, that was within them, that they wrote the scriptures from that place, they didn't make them up. They didn't have to learn them through ardent study and such. They were manifested to them because they paid attention, because they did what those inner promptings said. When those inner promptings, when that voice inside said, no, don't, don't do that, that hurts, they stopped doing it. <laughs> when that inner voice said, oh, don't be pulled into that, just sit and be quiet, they listened to that, they heard that. And through that practice, the scriptures were written. And I say that why? Because it's a beautiful adventure to know that the scriptures exist within you and that you can find them and that they're being sung to you all the time by this, by this divinity that's inherent within the heart. Some imaginations help to break the bondage of the rest. The whole universe is imagination, but one set of imaginations will cure another set. Those that tell us that there is sin and sorrow and death in the world are terrible. But the other set, the set that says you are holy, that there is a God, that there is no pain, these are good. They will help you to break the bondage of the others. The highest imagination that can break all the links of the chain is that of a personal God. That God will manifest outside of you in his, in, in a, in his full form but it's manifested out of you, manifested out of that divinity within you. Everything that we love, everything that we worship in Thakur and Ma and Swamiji and Jesus and Buddha, all of those things are our own. We see them in those people because of the teachings of Ramakrishna that we can only see in the world what exists within ourselves. In the teachings of Holy Mother, when she says not to see the faults of others, but to see your own faults. When she says, you know, that by, because you can only see things that exist within yourself, that whole example of the baby doesn't see a thief. A thief can come in and rob the baby blind, and it just doesn't care at all. Be that baby. <laughs> Be pure like that. Own nothing. Have no attachments. And there, isn't, there are no thieves in the world. You know, there are no thieves in the world. And this idea of God, you know, that on one sense, we, we think, oh, God's imagination, that means he's not real. No, no, no. Everything's an imagination. If you're going to say, because God is an imagination, he's not real, we have to go back to that verse again where Vivekananda says, everything is imagination. So if you're going to pick God out of that 
package and say, he's not real, then you're going to have to take the whole package and understand that you're declaring the whole package is not real, which is, in fact, one of the truths, one of the mysteries that we stumble upon. That's terrifying when you sit and realize that practically in this world, you know nothing. You don't know one thing. You know, there's... <laughs> There's a wonderful meditation. I've shared this before also, but it's a wonderful thing to do. Sit in your, in your place of meditation and try and think of one thing that you know that's not dependent on something else that you think you know. Try and find one thing that you know that's not dependent on something else you think you know. And you find that all of your knowledge depends on another assumption and that assumption depended on another assumption. And that one has five more underneath it. And you try and find the bottom of that chain. And you understand that basically what you've done is just said, this is what it is because I can't figure out anything else. I, I just don't know, so we're settling for this. We're going to be very conventional about this. We're going to accept this as a fact and work with it. So we're going to change that today. And we're going to take this highest imagination of the divine and we're going to try and manifest it and to let it show itself to us through the words of David in one of his songs that he wrote. He's praying, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all of my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their names upon my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue, it rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasure at your right hand. When we go through it and just pull out the little tidbits that we find that, that, that David is betraying to us, the truths that he's realizing as he dances with this divinity, as he spends his life in the presence of this divinity, he says, for in you I take refuge. You know, that he turns to, turns to the divine. When things get shaky, when the mind begins to get depressed, when, you know, the news seems a little bit overwhelming, we can't quite take it, something horrible happens in our lives, we can't deal with it, where do we go? What do we do with that? Do we call our friends? Do we take a drink? Do we go to the movies? <laughs> You know, what do you do with that? For, for that person who wants to manifest that divinity, he goes there, tests that, tries to find that place. Where is that peace that was in me before I heard that piece of news? Where is that contentment that was in me before that event happened? I take refuge in that, that divinity, that God, that tranquility, that peaceful nature that is within for I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, we could say, you could take that in one sense and say that he saw the Lord as being the only good thing and everything else is rubbish. But I think there's a little bit more Vedanta going on there than that. I think that he's saying it is the Lord that makes anything good. Because he understood that by seeing this world as it is, by understanding that it is the direct manifestation of love, of the divine, that through that vision, all things are good, all things are beautiful, and that if he removes God from that picture, that if you forget for a moment this divinity 
and think that the world is full of chairs and jobs and buses and houses and people, lovers and haters, when you think that for a moment and forget that it is the beloved, you have no good thing. There is nothing lasting here that can feed you, nothing that can give you satisfaction. You were born into this world to give, not to take. There's nothing here to be taken. <laughs> One of the most fundamental truths that we know, and yet what are we all doing? We're running around collecting. <laughs> Just running around collecting. For what? You can't take anything. You can't take anything. We know we're immortal. We know that. That's why we're running around collecting. So we've got this idea of keeping it forever. But we tie that to a body that isn't. And all of these things need the body to be touched, need the body to be smelled, need the body to be heard, need the, the body to be, to be you know, experienced. And when the body goes, what of them? I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land that they are the noble ones in whom is all of my delight. Those who run after other gods, those who worship other things, you know, it's always convenient to say, oh, other gods means the other gods. A god is anything that you worship. And what is it that you worship? Those things that you serve. If you, if you serve the body, that's another god. You know, idols are never on a shrine. Idols are always in the audience. Idols are always on this side of the fence. It's what you are worshiping. I look at I look at how I treat my body. You know, you would have to call that worship. The way I feed it, the way I clean it, the way I primp it, the way I look at it, the way I get sorry when it doesn't look quite the way I want it to. You know, <laughs> all these all these things, which in their sense really have to make a person chuckle a little bit. You know that we do this this ritual. But look inside. He says, those who run after gods will suffer more and more. If you run around this world worshiping pleasure, worshiping the things, worshiping objects, seeking them out, you know, making them the place you take refuge, making them the place you go for your, your happiness and for your enjoyment. If you take those things, suffering is there. Not as a punishment, but because you forgot the one major rule, that you were born to give and not to take. And in that taking, you became a worshiper of idols. You became a server of, of things that, that have no existence of their own, that cannot give anything to you. We're going to have a wonderful way of experiencing this very soon. And actually, if you're willing to spend the money, you can do it now. But you know, they have this, this virtual reality stuff and of course, I've done the thing with the phone, you know, where you can look around and it's really cool until you realize you can't touch anything there, that there's, you can't actually move. You can only stand there and like look up and look down and it's all, that's fun for like 15 minutes, you know, it's like, so it's not fun until you get the other senses engaged, but you get to understand that as the eternal witness of the world, that if you were, if you were aware that you were not in that world, if you were aware that this world was just your cell phone <laughs> in front of your eyes, if you come to that realization, there's nothing interesting here. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing to draw you into it. You take 10 minutes of that and you're like, oh, that's cool, that's what that is, and you move on, all right? This world is that. Look closely for 10 minutes and be like, oh, that's what it is, and move on. Remember that all the things that gave you pleasure, the pleasure is not with you today. It's not with you right now. Think of all the thousands of things that we've done for fun and for pleasure in the world, and we're sitting in this room with none of it. That excitement of the roller coaster, <laughs> that thrill of the first kiss, that adventure of your first whatever, you know. Where is it this morning? It's gone. It's in the memory. It's, it's in the imagination. Perhaps it never happened. You certainly can't prove that it did. You know? 
to look at those things, understand that. Don't run after these other gods. You will suffer more and more. I will not put out my effort. I will not pour out my oblations to such gods. I will not give myself to those things. I'm not going to invest in those things. I'm not going to go to work eight hours a day so that I can buy a big TV, a big house, and a big car, whatever it is that catches your fancy. Stop pouring out your life for those things. You don't have much life. You've got one bottle of life of an indeterminate size, but it's finite. You're pouring that out at the feet of what? What are you spending your time on? What are you spending your day on? What gods are you pouring your libations out on? What is it that you're worshiping with your time, with your life? Takor says, you know, it's okay, it's okay. Earn a living, take care of your family, have some enjoyment in things. But if you have extra, give it to others. Of yourself, give to others. That's the only way to find joy in this world. You know, I've dealt a lot with depression in life. And this is one of the greatest teachings. That we're here to take and not to give. Because depression is all about sitting and, realize, and, 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 and counting the things you're not getting. <laughs> it's all about sitting and, and thinking about the things that you don't have and that you can't do and that you aren't becoming and that you can't access in yourself. When that time comes, get up and go worship God. Go give something to somebody. Go do something for somebody. Stop wasting yourself. With, these, with selfishness. There's nothing here to take. Know that immediately. And go about giving. Go about thinking of others and caring for them. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. He says there are three things. My portion, my cup, and you make my lot secure. You know, God as a portion is infinite. There's infinite love here. There's infinite bliss here. God is a drink. God is as a quencher of your desires, a quencher of your thirst. It's the only one. When there was a woman that came to Ramakrishna and complained her husband was a drunk. And, uh, you know, Ramakrishna wasn't really bothered by that, aside from the fact that this woman was suffering from it. And he tells her, go bring your husband here. And she says, oh, she doesn't ask why, but he says, so that I can give him the drink that he will never have to drink again. You know, so that I can give him the thing that will keep him intoxicated for the rest of his days. Come there. I think about that. That's an easy story to read over, but I always like to stop when I hear something like that and put myself in the picture. Do I consider my relationship with divinity, my spiritual life, intoxicating? Do I, do I find it a pleasure? Do I find it a beautiful thing? Do I find it the thing that I prefer in a day? That I look for in a day? You know, there's so much growth to, to, to happen, so much cleaning up the mind to happen so that I can see those things, so that we can see those things. That this is intoxication to think of God. This is the thing to be preferred. That if you're doing it right, your happiness can be found here. And it's a happiness that exists within, ever-present, ever-pure, ever-free. Doesn't have to be purchased, doesn't have to be worked for, doesn't have to be found. Simply let it be. Stop covering it. It is what's there already. You alone are my portion, God, my cup. You make my lot secure. I find my security in you. Not in my money, not in my big family, not in my reputation, not in my accomplishments. Those aren't the things that are making me secure. What makes me secure is my relationship with you. What makes me secure is knowing what I am, that infinity is within me, that there is no fear, that this world is my inner self in its entirety, a manifestation of that divinity. That's where your security lies. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. 
You see, that's the heart that sings the Gita, that sings the scriptures, the Dhammapada, as you will, the Bible, the whatever. The heart that will sing those songs to you, the heart that will teach you of the divine, that will teach you of the beautiful things in the world. Those things that, that it, it will make you aware. Like when you, when you go down, go down to the National Gallery, and if you can manage to find something in there that's beautiful, stand in front of that and wonder, why is it, what, what is beauty? That's another one of those things. <laughs> it's like something we think about. We, we talk as if we know what it is. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's not beautiful. Oh, that's very beautiful. And then somebody says, well, what, is, what does beautiful mean? What is, what is beauty? Anytime you, t you take anything like that and say, what is it? You're going <laughs> to... You're going to just grab after and try and figure out, and you're going to realize you have no idea. Why, why is something beautiful and why is something ugly? You know, what is that? What is that relative to? What is the definition of that? Why is it coming from that place? This is what makes you let go of these things, these notions, and begin to fall a little bit, begin to slip a little bit in your stability, this fake stability that you've managed to conjure up out of nothing, you know stacking a few bricks around yourself and calling it a home, putting some of those bricks on wheels and calling it a car, <laughs> you know, taking a bunch of food and turning it into a child, you know. These things, what are they? They're phantoms. You're a phantom. You come and you go. You sit in this room long enough, everything in here is going to disappear. You know, when I came back to Maryland here after, because I, I, I went to eighth grade in Poolsville, <laughs> which was quite an experience. I went to eighth grade in Poolsville and I worked at the Potomac Valley Country Club, which was a very grand place with big, beautiful uh, chandeliers and nice carpets. It was a very pretty place. And I used to work there doing several things. One of the things was working in the coat check. And so at these big balls that they would throw, you know, for the people that were lucky enough to live on the banks of the Potomac, uh, would come to these big balls and I would take their jackets and hang them up and give them that little tag. And, <laughs> that's all I'm telling, but uh, we'd, we'd stay there. And uh, when I came back here three years ago, uh, one of the first things I did out of curiosity was drive to Poolsville to see what was going on there. And I drove out to the Potomac Valley Country Club, and I was driving down that big grand entrance avenue, which is still there, but things weren't right. I couldn't figure out initially what I was seeing. I could see the big clubhouse there with the big drive-up you know, portico and all of that. And as I got closer, I realized, oh my God, the, it's, the roof has fallen in. And when I got to the parking lot, I saw that Potomac Valley Country Club was abandoned. <laughs> it, was, it was gone. The roof was falling in. I went and pushed open the, the, the glass door, you know, on the front. The chandeliers are still hanging inside. Some of them, some of them are on the ground. Some of the roof is on the ground in there. And I was walking through this and it was... It was so weird, the feelings that I had inside, because that was my first job. I remember my first night there, walking in as the dishwasher. That's what I was hired for, to be a dishwasher. And they didn't have an electric dishwasher. They had stacks of dishes and three sinks, <laughs> and me. <laughs> and I sat there. I remember when I came out after work, my, you know, my hands were white and all wrinkled and scaled up, because I didn't have gloves even. And my mother, when I got in the car and she saw my hands, she broke into tears. <laughs> That's all beside the point. But here we are, we, this, this Potomac Valley Country Club that I walked in. How could it not be there? How, how, does, how does that get abandoned? How does somebody walk away and leave chandeliers and tables and cups and kitchens and bars and, <laughs> and just let it fall in? How does that happen? And it really gave me a, a very interesting state of mind to realize that my past is dead. It's not there. I went into my old high school. You know, their junior, back then it was a junior-senior high. Now it's just a high school. I walked in there. I walked into the theater where I did my first play, which changed my life gave me horrible ideas of delusion <laughs> that I chased for a good number of years, but, but still a big part of my childhood. And I walked in there, and there were some kids practicing a scene on the stage. 
you know, and I walked in and I was feeling such a connection, you know, like, oh, this is so cool. You're doing that. I was doing that. that I loved that. That was my whole life at that time. And I go over to them and, the, and it wasn't shared at all. Like they were looking at me like, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> Get out, you know? And when I tried to connect, I was like, you know, I went to school here and, uh, you know, I was here when I was... My class was the first class to use this theater. It was brand new at that time, you know. And expecting or wanting to share this deep experience of, of childhood. And it wasn't happening. It wasn't there. I walked down the hall to the classroom of my favorite teacher. It was an English classroom back then. Now it's a math room. <laughs> and I walked around the halls. And my heart was just wanting to see Mrs. Davis, you know, my heart was just wanting to bump into Charles, you know, or his sister. And they're not there. <laughs> and they'll never be there again. What do I learn from that? It makes you sad to the level that you're attached to that, to the level that you misunderstood what you were seeing and what you were enjoying when you were in the midst of that. For all of that joy, all of that, that love that I felt, all of that adventure that I had at that time of my life, I mistook it. I mistook it for a building. I mistook it for a stage. I mistook it for a particular teacher. I didn't understand that that which was aroused in me is still in me. That all of the love that I had for my best friends and for, for the things that I studied there and the things that I got to, got to, got to discover that those were all within me and still are within me. And if you sit here long enough in this room, chances are the ceiling's going to cave in one day. Chances are these chairs are going to turn to dust. And certainly we are. You know, just go back 10 years. Who's not here today that was here 10 years ago? Who's here today that won't be here? in two years, in five years, in ten years? What is it that you love about them? You love God, which is ever-present, which, which, which is manifesting everywhere always. That's the love that we have. We get challenged in that quite a bit in this life because we really believe in these things. We really hold on to them as being real. We really want them to be because they belong to our set of assumptions that cover the fact that we know nothing, that we haven't figured out even one thing. And so we clutch to these notions. We clutch to this idea of this world. We clutch to this idea of being a man, being a woman, because it's the only thing we've come up with. It's the only thing we can assume. In the book of Job, I've only got a few minutes here to, to jump into this story, but Job was, a, was a, a very upright man, absolutely pure, absolutely righteous, absolute, just he was the ideal person in relationship to God, and he loved God very much. And God, uh, and then we're going into the Christian context here, so God and Satan are actually talking in, uh, in this scene. And God is boasting about his man, Job. He's like, have you ever seen anybody like this guy? He is so generous. He's so giving. He's so caring. He's so pure. He's so righteous. Everything he does for others. Look at the way he took care of his family. Look at the, all these things that he does. You know, he says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. And Satan says to him, you know, the devil, evil incarnate, says to him, the other side of the coin, he says, does Job fear you for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has had? You've blessed his work so that he's rich, he has flocks and herds, that his reputation is great and spread around the land. He says, take away all of these, all of these beautiful things that you've given to him, all this nice house and this nice family and this nice car. Take that away. Let's see. Let's see what happens. And then this happens. Listen to this, this, put yourself in this situation. So the Lord says to him, very well, everything he has is in your power, Satan. Go do what you want, but on him as a person you can't lay a hand. 
This is what happens. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put all of the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While this messenger was still speaking, another messenger came and said, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put all of your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at their older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are all dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. (laughs) At this, Job got up, (laughs) tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. So then God, Satan again, that goes back to Satan talking to God. Satan's, you know, standing God's like, see, I told you. You can't shake him. You can't move him. And Satan says, well, that's because you wouldn't let me lay my hands on him, you know. Everybody's fine as long as they've got their health and their body and their mind. And so God says, okay, I'll give you those, but you can't kill him. So the Lord says, so Satan goes out of the presence of God and afflicts Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and was scraping himself with it as he sat among the ashes His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You're talking like a fool. Shall we accept good from God and not accept trouble? He goes on. This story continues, and it it just keeps getting worse. His friends turn on him. Because this is interesting. In in 2000, I think it was 2008, I broke my leg. And uh, in the temple, (laughs) nonetheless... So the big discussion I heard from one of the devotees who was in the kitchen, they were cooking up a big uh, meal for, for one of our celebrations. And he was telling me, he says, you know what they were all talking about in the kitchen? I was like, no, what's that? They were like, they were all trying to figure out what kind of karma you had in order to have broken your leg in the temple. <laughs> Fortunately, they never figured it out. But uh, the, uh, the thing about that is that Job's friends all come to him. And they're like, man, what have you done? You must have really, you know, upset God seriously. What kind of karma? Exactly that question. What, what have you, what's your karma? What have you done? You need to repent immediately and turn to God. And, and, and he's like, I didn't do anything, you know. What, what, what do you think, that this, this, this world is a market, that everything has a price? He goes on, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't. So, so his friends come and accuse him of that. And then, another, then when he defends himself, says, no, I haven't done anything wrong. Then they attack his character. See, you're lying. You, you're, you're deceived of yourself. You don't know right from wrong. You haven't figured out up from down. You know, they attack him in that level. His wife is like, just, you know, give this up. You're, you're wretched. Go away. Just go off and die somewhere. You know, so all of his support goes away. And he sings this. He says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose my, his hand and to cut off my life. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of my Holy One. All of his delight was in that relationship with God. 
in that relationship with the beloved. At this point, it's gotten so bad that he's praying for death. If God would, if God would just kill me right now, then I could die with the assurance that I did not compromise, that I did not speak ill of him, that I did not violate my integrity in the way that I live. I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer is pure. Earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. God has made me a byword to everyone, a man in whose face people spit. My eyes have grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. The upright are appalled at this. The innocent are aroused against the ungodly. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to their ways. And those with clean hands will grow stronger. But come on, all of you, try again. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed, my plans are shattered, yet the desires of my heart turn this night into day. In the face of the darkest night, light is near. If, only, if the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in the realm of darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? He says, you know, here, that his days have passed, his plans are shattered. He says, but if I turn to what? If I turn to corruption, if I turn to the flesh, if I turn to these worldly things that, that, that fall away, if I get bitter, if I, get, if I measure the world according to my senses and make God wrong, you know, if I do that, I've lost everything. He says, but if I hold on to this idea of the ever-present self, to this beautiful nature within here, he says, that will turn my night into day. That will turn my night into day. And in the face of the darkness, I will see the light is near. He understood he had to abandon this world. He had to abandon his notion of good and bad, right and wrong, his notions of karma. He had to abandon all of that and look to that eternal presence, to that divine, so that he could not blame God, not get tricked into that false thinking. If I go to the east, he is not there, and I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him, and when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I'm terrified before him. When I think of all of this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked. My tongue will never utter a lie. You see, the strength of Job comes from the same place the strength of John of the Cross came from when he writes about that. This notion of God, this, this notion of like, I do what is right for the joy of doing what is right, for the joy of serving pure love, for the joy of serving and giving and caring. I don't do it because God's going to take care of me. I don't keep my eyes on the things that, that are corruptible, the things that end, the things that, that fall away, and let them tell me and judge me and, judge and, and, and make me a judger of God. Let all of that go. Take my family, take my 
possessions, take my loves, take all of it away, because my joy was in that relationship. My contentment was in my practice. My love came from that direct manifestation of being in the presence of the divine. I expect nothing for that. I've earned nothing for that. I will not look at that and judge God according to those things. My joy in God is for the sake of God alone. My love for this place is because of the ideal alone. I do not measure God's justice by what happens in a mortal, fleeting, imaginary world. Love for love's sake. Love for love's sake is what Vivekananda talks about. So when you live this life, our joy needs to be in the process itself because God is everywhere present and always perfect. That pure love is everywhere around us. We can't let our love of these phantoms and these imaginations become the thing that turn us against that love, that divinity. We can't look at the hardship that happens and judge God for it. Because it's unreal, it's imaginary, and what, and what it says from a perspective of a human being depends entirely on what's in your mind to understand. So find that place that, that David is talking about. Find that relationship with the divine in which you can take refuge. Find that place within you that manifests itself when you live according to your scriptures, to the scriptures that are manifesting within you at midnight. The song is being sung, David says. My heart instructs me in the light of the moon. Find that place. Do your practice for its own sake so that those, those things that are covering this place from you will fall away so that you will know what refuge is. That when David says, in you alone I take refuge, you'll actually sigh and go, oh, yeah. Yeah, to be reminded of that. Touch those places. Explore those places. Find this treasure within this tranquility then, which will follow you through all of what Job went through. Certainly none of us has gone through even a measure of what he went through. And he actually questions God at the end. The end of it's quite beautiful because the story ends with Job still faithful. Job never does uh, turn against God. But he, he, comes, he goes all the way to the edge where he, he just starts questioning the existence. He's like, how? Why, God, is this even possible that I'm going through all of this? And at that point, God appears, and God takes him on this journey and shows him his real nature, very much like what happened to Arjuna in, the, in that chariot with Krishna. He catches, he gets, he gets a vision of the divine. He catches a vision. And in that amazing in, infinity of an experience that he has, he falls down on the ground and apologizes to God, even after all that God has done to him. After seeing God, he falls on his face and apologizes. Who was I to question? Who was I to want to put you up on the judgment block, to think of you as if you were a thing? And he was so inspired and so filled with that divine love. God gives him everything back. Times 10, of course. <laughs> like all those stories go. God gives it all back to him. And Satan walks off defeated. Saying, yes, in fact, you have an amazing devotee in Job. Yeah. It's a tough story to hear. Because we measure God by the way he treats us. <laughs> it's a tough story to hear because we measure God by what he gives us. And if we do that, we're not, that's, that's not the thing. We're going to be sorry. Not because we've judged God in that sense, but because we valued the wrong thing. 
because we picked something unimportant, something trivial, and measured God by it without knowing what we were measuring, without having found what we're testing. So that's the challenge this morning. Just sit here right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you trays of food and something that you like to drink, and you can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. That from Hafiz. Let's take a moment and just sit in the presence of that divinity.